I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. It was quickly called a Friday Night Massacre, a completely unexpected announcement by Attorney General William Barr that Jeffrey Berman, arguably the single most powerful federal prosecutor in the country, had decided to step down as U.S. Attorney in the Southern District of New York. Only Berman quickly made clear he hadn't resigned at all and had no intention of doing so until the next day when President Trump, at Barr's request, fired him. What explains this bizarre chain of events? And does it have anything to do with the sensitive cases Berman had been overseeing of direct interest to President Trump, including a widely publicized probe into the overseas dealings of the president's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani? We'll discuss with a former prosecutor in the same office, and we'll talk to a proud and unabashed never-Trumper, Florida Republican strategist Rick Wilson, on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So bizarre is the only word I can think of to explain uh, what was happening at the Justice Department over the weekend. Clearly, the idea of getting rid of the U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York with only, what, six months left, seven months left in the administration seemed inexplicable. You put that on top of all these sensitive cases that that Berman had going in the Southern District, and it certainly seemed suspicious. We don't really know, but surely it did not do a lot to instill already sinking confidence in the Bar Justice Department. I don't get it. <laughs> you know, we, as we've said on this podcast many times, we covered Bill Barr closely when he was Deputy Attorney General, then when he was Attorney General back in the early 90s. He always struck me as one of the smartest lawyers that I ever encountered at the Justice Department. But not only that, he was also a deft political operator, and he did not make these kinds of mistakes. In fact, to the contrary, he was really good about making sure that he had the kinds of relationships on Capitol Hill, for example, that would protect him. He was a pretty tough guy, but um, he was deferential when he needed to be because he knew he needed to keep political capital to do the things he wanted to do. He had a very close relationship at the time with Joe Biden, who was the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And this time around... All he does is squander political capital by making what seem to be kind of boneheaded political mistakes. And it's one after the other. It's not just what he's doing. It is how he's doing these things. It's just ham-handed. And now maybe to give him the benefit of the doubt, maybe it has something to do with working for Donald Trump. Um, yeah, and the I, I, was, I was just going to say, I don't know if you caught his... Um interview over the weekend with Maria Bartoloma on Fox Business. And, um, you know, it's kind of covered the map, although she didn't drill down on this series of uh, events at all. But she did ask him, how often do you talk to the president? And he laughed in, in that, you know, indelible chuckle that he has and said pretty regularly. So it's pretty hard to imagine that all of these moves, if they're not coming from the president of the United States, uh, that Trump is being consulted about them. He's talking to Trump about them because this is the stuff that Trump, uh, you know, follows 
as closely as anybody could. Remember, before he ever fired James Comey, he fired Preet Bharara, the head of that office, after offering him to stay on the job, giving him the opportunity to stay on the job, thinking that he was somehow going to seduce Barrara and get somebody who he felt comfortable with in this very sensitive position. And once that became clear that Barrara wasn't going to go along, he fired him. So I have to believe that Trump knew every step of the way of what Barr was intending to do with Berman and may have even given the direction to do so. Yeah. Look, I mean, it is also conceivable to me that Barr just didn't get along well with with Berman. He, you know, no attorney general in the modern era has not sparred and fought with the sovereign district of New York. They do see themselves as being independent and independent in a way that I think gets under Bill Barr's skin. Ultimately, I'm sure he would be saying, you got to be accountable and you can't go rogue. So maybe he was, there were concerns about that. Maybe he's having PTSD from back in the, in the early 90s. But what he doesn't seem to be sensitive to is that even if he did this for the right reasons, and we certainly don't know what those are and we're baffled by it, he at least needs to know that he works for a president who has over and over again undermined the Department of Justice, you know, either fired or sought to fire people from the Justice Department because he didn't like their investigations. And I think we have evidence from the John Bolton book that at one point, correct me if I'm wrong here, Mike, but I, I think it was uh, in context of the uh, Turkish investigation, the bank investigation, that Trump at some point says, you know, yeah, don't worry. We'll uh, we'll get our people in there, right? In the Southern Yeah, we'll district. get rid of it. That's being done by Obama people. He tells that to Erdogan. The investigation of the Turkish government-owned bank, Erdogan being the president of Turkey, he tells him, you know, that's being done by Obama people. We'll get rid of them and put our people in. It certainly <laughs> looks like that's what Bill Barr is doing now. Yeah, so yeah. That, that, the optics of it are terrible, right. and he doesn't seem very particularly sensitive to that. But, but the point, just to complete that, story, though, is Bolton makes clear in the book. He takes his concerns about the president's interference or vows to interfere in criminal investigations to bar himself. He raises the issue with Barr. So what were those conversations like and what was Barr's takeaway from Bolton's concerns that the president was going to obstruct justice by interfering in these investigations? I just want to point out you know, one more point on this. Uh, I think we'll get this to this in our discussion with uh, Eli Honig in a minute. But before this, just a few weeks ago, we learned that Brian uh, Benskowski, the chief of the criminal division, was resigning. Then it was the solicitor general, Noel Francisco. Then it was the head of the civil division, Jody Hunt. One by one, the top echelon of the uh, Justice Department, the top officials of the Justice Department are heading to the hills with, you know, barely six months left in this administration. It does make you wonder what is going on at Maine Justice. Yeah, uh, I've never seen an exodus quite like this. Maybe it's a coincidence, but maybe there's also other shoes to drop, things that we don't know are, that are that are going on there and, and they want to get out. I will say that I've talked to friends of bars who say that he is a guy who doesn't really care that much about what the headline writers say about him or what the editorial pages say about him. But he does care, or he has always cared in the past about the Justice Department as an institution and the and the people who work there, and they cannot be particularly happy uh, with how things are going. And I wonder if that is uh, stinging at all. I wonder if Bill Barr is particularly happy these days in that job. Maybe he'll be the next uh, to head for the hills. Uh, doesn't I, seem doesn't I don't, seem likely. I don't see that happening. Hey, we should uh, also point out before we get to our guests, um, quite a scene in Tulsa the other night at the president's uh, rally. Underwhelming turnout. Uh, what did the uh, Tulsa authorities uh, estimate the crowd as? About 6,200. Well, less than capacity. Far from the 1 million that uh, the president's campaign folks were suggesting wanted to come to that rally. And if you saw the shots of Trump getting off the helicopter after returning from the rally, uh, boy, did he look unhappy. 
Uh, he did. I think that if I were a senior member of his campaign team right now, say Brad Pascal, I would not feel like my position was particularly safe. And uh, there are already rumors out there that uh, he could be either demoted or out. We'll have to see about that. You know, I will say this. The only, you know, the, the silver lining here, I think, is that my guess is there are, you know, a lot of people did not go to the rally because they were worried about catching COVID-19. The numbers were spiking in, in Oklahoma and people were not wearing masks in large numbers. And as you know, ideology and political leanings only take you so far. At the end of the day, my guess is there were a lot of people there who were didn't want to sacrifice, you know, their own health or the health of their families so that Donald Trump could have a capacity crowd there. Yes, you can't imagine why they wouldn't want to sacrifice the health of their families, I suppose. <laughs> uh, anyway, look, we got two great guests to talk about it, so uh, let's get right to it. We now have with us to try to make sense of uh, the whole U.S. attorney fiasco in New York, former federal prosecutor, former prosecutor in the U.S. attorney's office in the Southern District, uh, Ellie Honig. Ellie, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thank you, Michael. I think the, the key word you used there was the qualifier, try to make sense. <laughs> I will try to help make sense. I don't know that well, there's sense to be made here, though. Yeah, well, you just led up to my first question because I and a lot of other people are baffled by what happened here, why Barr chose to try to remove Berman in the way he did. It obviously didn't succeed, but he did succeed in getting rid of him. What do you make of the series of events over the weekend about your former office in New York? So the, the only logical conclusion I can draw is that this was a political play. I just don't think you can look at all the facts as they played out and come to any other conclusion. So let's let me run through what I mean by that. First of all, they announced this late on a Friday night. That in itself does not solve anything, but let's keep it in mind, right? No one ever announces anything that they're proud of or they, they feel like they can fully defend at 930 on a Friday night. Then, more importantly than that, they lie about it. Bill Barr lies. He tells everybody that Jeffrey Berman will be stepping down. And I got to tell you, when I saw that announcement, my first thought was, I'm not so sure about that. And an hour later, Jeffrey Berman tells us, nonsense. I am not stepping down. I never said I was stepping down. So why is Bill Barr lying about that? Also, with respect to the timing, to remove a U.S. attorney who was Trump himself's pick, technically he was nominated by Jeff Sessions because Trump never nominated anybody and then confirmed by judges. But Trump interviewed him and he was handpicked by Trump and he's a longtime Republican who's donated to Republicans. To remove a person like that less than five months before an election with no warning to anybody is inexplicable and I think fairly unprecedented. So when you look at all of that, and then of course there was the whole confusing sideshow where Barr changes position to say, well, now I've asked the president and he is at, and he will be firing you. And then Donald Trump, when asked about that, said, I didn't have anything to do with it. So they don't have their story straight or their act straight. And my only conclusion is, is it's political because, look, the Southern District is famously independent and they have a whole series of prosecutions and investigations now going against people in Trump's close orbit. So, Ellie, I mean, if Barr or Trump, if they just decided that they liked this guy, Jay Clayton, who's the, the head of the SEC and who, you know, was looking for a new job, they could have nominated him but not removed Berman, right? I mean, they could say, okay, well, we want this guy in, so we're going to nominate him, and, you know, Berman can be there and, until he goes in. But I, I just wonder, you say political, but is there at least the possibility, and there have been some suggestions of this in some of the coverage that I've read, that it may not be political in the sense that they didn't like where the investigations were going, getting too close to Trump, the Giuliani investigation, for example. I'm not saying that wasn't that, but I'm wondering, is it possible that it's also Barr didn't like Berman's approach, that he was obstinate, that um, he didn't want to, you know, he was just difficult to work with. Is that a possibility? Would that be considered political? Let me say this. I can't rule anything out, but it, to me, it seems highly, highly unlikely for a couple reasons. Reason number one, they can't have had a problem with 
Berman's competency because we know they offered him a high-ranking position at Maine Justice, at Justice Department headquarters. So if they had a problem with his performance or his competency, you don't offer to move the guy down to D.C. into the Maine headquarters. Let's, let's start with that. Second of all, Jay Clayton, by, by all accounts, a decent guy, but woefully, woefully unqualified to be the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. And all I, all I need to say on that is he's never been a prosecutor one day in his whole life. He works at the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, but that's, that's not a prosecutorial body. I mean, to put someone with zero prosecutorial experience in front of the SDNY is beyond ridiculous. So let's start with those two things. If they just decided they wanted to make a change, legally, absolutely, the president could nominate and the Senate could then confirm Jay Clayton. Now, the timing would still be very unusual, and it's – I can't – I'm sure it's happened, but I can't think of an example in recent history where a president has taken his, effectively his own pick for U.S. attorney in Jeff Berman and then replaced him right on the brink of an election with another one of his picks. I mean – George W. Bush got in a, a bit of heat because he removed a handful of his own uh, appointed U.S. attorneys or was trying to. That's really the most but, – but that became a, a scandal in the Bush administration. So even best-case scenario, I think that's where we're at. But I think it's very unlikely that it was just sort of innocuous but bungled. Right. Look, if the purpose here was for Barr to seize control of some of these sensitive cases, and I want to talk about them in a moment – it seems to me at the end of the day, it entirely backfired because what we've ended up with, what Barr announced on Saturday when he made clear that Trump had indeed fired Berman, so there was no question whether he could stay on the job. He couldn't. He's been fired. He put in as the new acting U.S. attorney, Audrey Strauss, a career prosecutor, a registered Democrat who has contributed to Hillary Clinton's campaigns among others, somebody who has seems to have a pretty sterling reputation for integrity. So Barr didn't get what you're suggesting he wanted to achieve in the first place, right? Yeah, I, look, I think this ended up backfiring spectacularly. Of course, it's never the intention of anybody to have something backfire. But this is why Jeffrey Berman deserves credit. And I don't know him, by the way. I didn't. I was gone before he started. I only know him by reputation. But if Jeffrey Berman had just gone along to get along, and it seems like this is what William Barr wanted him to do. When Barr made the first announcement, Berman will be stepping down. Thank, we thank him for his great service, blah, blah, blah. We'll be nominating Jay Clayton. If Berman had just gone along with that, we would have been suspicious. People like me would have been raising alarms, but we wouldn't have known the full extent of it. But because Berman said, no, no, that's not the deal. I never said this. He did two important things. One is exposure. He shined a light on the fact that Bill Barr had just lied to the public and that there was made it seem much more likely that there was a political angle to what was going on here. And two, he essentially protected the SDNY and got a much better end result because I already gave you my thoughts on Jay Clayton, clearly unqualified. Audrey Strauss is exactly the person who should have filled in this job because this is the way it works in the normal life. Let's just assume Jeffrey Berman had said, I've done my time. It's been great, but I, I need to go make some money with back to my firm or whatever, which is a very common thing for people to do, then the U.S. attorney leaves and the deputy, which is what Audrey Strauss was, the number two person in the office, steps up and becomes the acting U.S. attorney. I, that happened a couple times during my tenure. That is the normal circle of life, so to speak. And Audrey Strauss, I know plenty of people who know her and have worked with her, and she has a reputation as what an SDNY prosecutor should be right down the middle, all about the facts, not about politics. Well, now there's another figure that is part of this story. I mean, originally what Barr was trying to do was put the U.S. attorney in New Jersey in charge of the Southern District once Berman was out. Craig Carpentino, I don't know if you know anything about him. I do know, uh, looking it up, that he did represent Chris Christie in the um, Fort Lee lane closure <laughs> scandal, and uh, he's a Trump appointee, but Sessions put him in there. Can you explain why ultimately Barr was thwarted from doing what he originally wanted to do to put Carpentino in there? Well, so let me say this. First of all, I do know Craig Carpentino fairly well. I don't know why on earth they decided to thrust him in the middle of this. He's a straight shooter. I, I know him well. I mean, he's, he's legitimate. He has real prosecutorial background, um, but he's also running the District of New Jersey. I mean, being a U.S. attorney for one district is a borderline impossible job. I mean, talk to anyone who's been U.S. attorney. It's, it's all consuming. And, and two, 
I mean, it's just physically impossible. So I don't know what their plan was there. Craig Carpenito is not the kind of guy who will go in and kill investigations or, or, or do the wrong thing. So can I tell you Bill Barr's plan? I don't know. But I think, again, the big unforeseen development was Jeffrey Berman really standing up and saying publicly immediately after Barr's announcement, this is not how it went down. And, and it'll be interesting mm-hmm. to see what, if anything, Jeffrey Berman says. I will say there is one new data point that just before we started this interview, the Wall Street Journal moved the story about a letter that the uh, that the Justice Department, that Maine Justice wanted Berman to sign. It was from the uh, head of the Civil Rights Division. It was a letter that was supposed to go to Mayor de Blasio criticizing him for a double standard on social distancing because he was continuing to push for social distancing for religious ceremonies, but not for protesting. And they wanted, apparently, Berman to sign this letter. Berman refused to do it because of wanted to preserve his relationship with the city. And I think he probably thought it was overtly political. Would that in any way explain what happened here to you? Well, let me say this. If that was the reason, why not just say it? And why not just say we had a difference in policy opinion and we're removing him? However, you know, there's various ways that that could be done legally. And and not just not just uh, that, but why lie about it? Why say he's stepping down? And beyond that, if this is the reason, if you had a falling out over policy or whether he should be signing this letter or not, why offer him a job at Maine Justice? For those three reasons, I'm having a little bit of a hard time accepting that as some sort of benign right. or legitimate <laughs> reason. We should point out also that in Barr's letter on Saturday, he openly encouraged any prosecutors or members of the office who think that something improper is going on to contact the inspector general, which is not something you would do if your goal was to somehow squash the uh, the investigation into Rudy Giuliani or any investigations into the Trump organization. Now, maybe Barr felt he had no choice at that point, but... Um, isn't it, isn't that that sort the, of... Isn't that what the lawyers called mens rea? <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, right. I mean, I, I think that's what a lawyer calls cover your ass. <laughs> yeah. No, it could it could well be that, but it was not something he had to do. And also, just think about it. You look, Ellie. How long did you work in the office? Like eight years, eight and a half years. You know the people in there. You know their reputation for independence and integrity, and for uh, chafing at any restrictions put on them by the by main justice. If in fact the game plan of Barr was to interfere in these politically sensitive cases. Do you think there's any way the world would not learn immediately about what he was trying to do? I mean, Berman himself, let's say Berman took the job and then saw his cases being squashed. Surely, you know, he would speak out, as would many other prosecutors in the office. Well, let me say two things on that. Number one, there are ways to undermine a case short of just coming in and sending in the troops and saying, we're seizing these files and this case is closed, right? There are more... Although that, although Barr has done that in the case of uh, <laughs> Michael Flynn. But, exactly. Yeah, go right, ahead. Michael. Sure. I mean, take, for example, on the Mueller case, right? Mueller lays out what I think is a powerful case for obstruction. I mean, I was one of, I forget the number, well over a thousand former prosecutors who said this is more than enough to charge obstruction of justice. Bill Barr just sort of looks at it and he issues this summary conclusion of, well, I, I, I respectfully he didn't use these terms, but I respectfully disagree. I just don't see an obstruction charge here. Right. I, I mean, so that's not you know, that's a subtle way to undermine the case to just say, well, we have different interpretations. Look at the Michael Flynn case. Right. Barr comes in and he and he covers himself in, in official looking legal citations and says this case was mishandled. I mean, if you really look at it, he's wrong legally, but. Lawyers disagree. Lawyers take silly positions. And so you can undermine a case in a really insidious way by just saying, well, I just reached an opposite conclusion. It's not necessarily as as obvious and sort of sinister as saying, I hereby shut you down. You just say, well, I'm the attorney general and SDNY, you know, God bless you for being independent, but you're still part of the Justice Department. And um, so, you know, I'm the AG and my word prevails. That's number one. Number two, culturally in the Southern District of New York. There is a the way you are raised there, the way I was raised there is you do your job, you don't be a squeaky wheel, you never leak. I mean, I don't believe the SDNY leaks in any significant way. 
at least the AUSA is there. Look, there's other people around. You deal with law enforcement agencies. But, I mean, we had the living daylight scared out of us. And occasionally media would call me. I did mob cases, and they'd want me to talk about them. I was scared. To, I would just go press office, call the press office. You know, I had the, whatever the extension was, boom, and then just hang up. So there's that. And also the reality is what third-year AUSA, if he feels like the attorney general has interfered with his case, is going to pick up the phone and call the inspector general, who, by the way, the attorney general and the president repeatedly have undermined. Let's not forget. How have they undermined the inspector general? Oh, gosh. <laughs> they they embrace the rep- the FISA report. Right. Well, no, no, no. They, they embrace what they like, but they don't embrace what, what they don't like. I mean, when there were findings that there was no political, no ex- explicit political bias. I mean, Trump has spoken out against this inspector general several times. Barr hated the initial report that came out of Michael Horowitz, who's the IG's office, on the origins of the Russian case. And then that's why Barr went and got John Durham. And I think he's just, you know, it's like, well, well I don't Dur- Durham was or- had already been appointed to do that investigation. In fact, it was Durham who put out the most surprising what? comment. Durham, some a guy who's been a career prosecutor, a guy who's pretty well respected in the law enforcement community. It was he who challenged the conclusion of the inspector general about the origins of the Russia investigation. Barr did as well, but well, it was well, Durham well, that undermined that, it as well. Bar, Bar yeah. publicly said said something to the effect of I, I don't necessarily agree right. with that, and we'll still we'll see what Durham has to say. And he said, and he even went a step farther and tipped his hand and said, I I think we're going to be seeing some really you know uh, strong findings coming out of Durham's shop, which is by the way against the Justice Department manual to a comment on a pending investigation and b to comment in a substantive way about how it might come out. So and Bar, and, Bar has undermined yeah. the the IG, no question. Yeah, and it's pretty unusual for maybe unprecedented for an attorney general to criticize his own inspector general. I don't think. Well, that wait, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna push back on that. I mean, you all we've all read inspector general reports in which it's then distributed to the agencies, the FBI, the Justice Department, etc., and they make comments. They accept the findings and then they will challenge some findings as well. Yeah. That is yeah. not that unusual for well, the Justice yeah, Department to say, I mean, no, we right. don't accept all of your findings. There is a natural tension between any agency head and the IG. I mean, that's why an IG is there, to make findings about waste, fraud, abuse within the agency. Any head of an agency is going to – there's a natural tension. I'm, what I don't approve of is Bill Barr holding up the IG, the same person he has publicly undermined, and we can debate to what extent, but to some extent, and said, hey, everybody – after he got called out, by the way, Barr, for lying and saying – well, by the way, anyone, um, feel free to call the IG if you see any problems. I mean, like I said, first of all, as a practical matter, what third year AUSA is going to pick up the phone and get in touch with the IG's office? I wouldn't have. I would not have. And, and I think most of my colleagues would not have. You want to do your job. You don't want to cause drama in the department. And like I said, there's ways Barr can undermine a case that are much more subtle and much less obviously sinister than I think people often imagine. What are you going to do, say – I thought there was an obstruction case here, but the AG disagreed with me. I want you to fix it, IG. That, that's just not a realistic. Okay. All right. Let's step back for a second and put Barr's conduct in this episode in some context, some historical context. So Isakoff mentioned the Mike Flynn case where Barr made the decision to drop that case. You mentioned the Mueller investigation and obstruction. Uh, there is, of course— Pushing for a much lower sentence uh, in the in the um, in the Roger Stone case. There's actually there's actually uh, another U.S. attorney episode where they pushed out Jessica Liu in the U.S. attorney in D.C. to put Barr's crony from back in the day when we covered him, Tim Shea. By the way, she is then nominated for a high level uh, Treasury Department job until until Trump pulls the plug on that. So in the pantheon of attorneys general, where do you put Bill Barr? I mean, how do you see how is um, history going to uh, view his attorney generalship? Who is he up there with? Is it John Mitchell? Is it Homer Cummings? Where, Where do you put him? Yeah. I mean, look, I'll slot him up ahead of John Mitchell, who I think was convicted of actual crimes for now, <laughs> at least, but, but only a slot or two. I mean, look, all I can really compare it to is the attorney general in my experience. I worked under four AGs when I was, I think it was four at the, at the SDNY. I came in under Ashcroft a couple of years and then Alberto Gonzalez and then Michael Mukasey and then Eric Holder. So three Republicans, four Democrats. 
you're not always going to agree with the policy priorities of the attorney general. I remember, I think it was Ashcroft coming around to the SDNY and he made his stump speech. And there was a big thing in there about how one of the things we were going to be doing was cracking down on obscenity cases, federal obscenity cases. And we all just laughed and rolled our eyes and it became a joke within the office after that. People were emailing the whole office saying, I hereby appoint so-and-so chief of the new obscenities unit. But you're never going to necessarily, you don't have to agree with the policy priorities of whoever the attorney general is. But for all four of those AGs that I just mentioned, three Republicans, one Democrat, I never questioned their essential integrity and independence. I, I never saw any of them make a public statement that was immediately obvious or called out as being a lie. I never believed that they were there to try to help or hurt the president or other political figures. And I think William Barr is, is completely different in kind from, from those four AGs who I worked under. So let's talk a little about the cases that people have pointed to, the politically sensitive cases that the office was doing. Probably first and foremost is the ongoing case of Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman, the two cronies of Rudy Giuliani, who have been indicted for illegal campaign contributions, uh, including arranging fund funding to a pro-Trump super PAC. And that has supposedly spun off, it's been reported, to an investigation of Giuliani himself. That would seem to be, you know, the most single most sensitive case that the office had. There was also whatever happened to the outgrowth, if there was any, of the Michael Cohen guilty plea for making the uh, illegal payment to uh, the porn star to protect Donald Trump that was implicated the Trump organization because Cohen got the money from the Trump organization. What did they know? There's that. There's also the Jeffrey Epstein case that obviously has gotten lots of attention. As you look at the pantheon of cases out there, do you believe that this could be related to the conduct of any of those investigations? Yeah. So each one of those investigations, and I, I'll throw in Hulk Bank as well, the Turkish bank, which we can talk about. Right. Although the Hulk Bank has been indicted. They, they indicted the bank, right? Right. right. Well, but, but so, so was Epstein and so was Cohen. The question is, where do these cases go? How far? And so was Lev, Lev Parnas. The question now is, look, every case, I mean, I've had cases that started with one person ended up with 40 defendants, right? You, you just... Part of the, I guess, fun of being prosecutors, when you start a case, you just don't know who else is going to end up getting implicated in it. And so the question is, look, on the one hand, it helps me keep faith in the independence of the SDNY that they've even been allowed to get some of these cases off the ground, that even under this administration and, and some of the time under Bill Barr, they were allowed to indict Michael Cohen. That was pre-Barr, to indict Lev Parnas, um, to indict Hawkbank. But the question is, are they being allowed to run their full course. I'll give you a couple examples of what I'm talking about. Jeffrey Epstein, obviously he was indicted, died. Okay. But there is still a major investigation of co-conspirators. I mean, all the papers that DOJ put in and the SDNY put in made clear Epstein did not do this alone. There were multiple people out there who should have been indicted. And if you remember, this was last summer of 2019, both the SDNY and William Barr, after Epstein died, made very strong statements that this will continue. And this, I think Barr's quote was, his co-conspirators should not rest easy. Well, here we are 10 months later. Where's the case against the co-conspirators? That, that's number one. Maybe it's coming soon. I hope it's coming soon. It seems like a, an open and shut case. Michael Cohen. Michael Cohen is the only person convicted of anything to do with the hush money payments to the two women who alleged they had, that they had affairs with Donald Trump. And that to me is, a very strange outcome because you have a lot of people who clearly were involved in authorizing and making and approving these payments, yet only Michael Cohen has ever been charged. Nobody else. The problem on that one could be as simple as uh, the only other potential defendant and the one who benefited the most from that is the president of the United States. And under Justice Department policy, you can't indict a sitting president. Or it may be that the evidence to prove that the president's intent was to affect the election simply rests on the word of Michael Cohen, who's uh, convicted of lying to the government. So not your best witness to bring a case against the president of the United States. 
Yeah, I agree with both of those things. I mean, look, obviously you cannot indict the president. And I think the SDNY, again, this is pre-bar, but they managed to put in a shot in there in their sentencing memo of Michael Cohen, where they said Michael Cohen acted at the direction and for the benefit of individual one. I mean, look, I, I'm guessing here, there's no way in hell Bill Barr allowed that statement to be put in, in, in any sort of DOJ court file. That's a devastating statement. And yes, I agree. It's not the strongest case in the world. And Michael Cohen was willing to take a plea so he can plead to it. SDNY also made some moves, and, and I don't think there's anything nefarious here that, that can be fairly second-guessed. They gave free to Wesselberg and to Pecker, right, the guy from the National Enquirer, both mm-hmm. of whom were involved in these payments. And look, it's a tactical decision. I've been in that seat. I've had to sometimes decide that this guy worth giving a free pass to to get his testimony. But they, they may have well ended up in a situation where there was nobody else realistically chargeable there. So look, and, and Lev Parnas, this is going to be really interesting to see where this case goes. Does he have information that leads them to Rudy Giuliani? And, and look, that's a big one. I mean, if Rudy Giuliani gets indicted, that's an earthquake for Donald Trump. So we'll have to see how that goes. And, and that could be a hotly disputed case as well. On the Epstein case, I mean, we do know there was some tension about Prince Andrew and getting Prince Andrew's testimony. And one wonders whether there could have been a conflict over that. Berman wanted to question, have the FBI question uh, Prince Andrew and uh, the National Security Council, maybe at the direction of the president who didn't want to dust up with Boris Johnson, said, no, we can't risk a confrontation with the Brits right now. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen any specific reporting that that, that happened. Is it possible? I mean, look, God, I, I'm rooting, God bless the SDNY here and going after Prince Andrew, at least to get his testimony. I mean, Prince, Prince Andrew, who we know was a, a buddy of Jeffrey Epstein's and has made some questionable statements since then, he vowed that he would assist the investigation. And so the FBI and prosecutors here apparently said, great, when do we talk? And Andrew, Prince Andrew went into hiding, essentially. And, you know, now if you're in the SDNY's position, you have to do what's called an MLAT, a mutual legal assistance treaty. It's it's this whole difficult process to get a foreign subpoena served. But look, Prince Andrew, I mean, he said he was going to cooperate. He's now not cooperating. So I think what I what I don't get on that one is uh, Ghislaine Maxwell. She would, you know, Epstein's sidekick, who from all the testimony of the women was the one who was procuring the girls for Epstein. Why she hasn't been charged at this point is the biggest mystery to me. It's funny because I, I puzzled through this with people. We've said, how have they not already charged her? I mean, six months ago. And I'll tell you what I can think of. I mean, it could be she's cooperating and they're still debriefing her, but I don't know who that really else. She, to, to get who? She's the procurer. I mean, right. I mean she the, the seems to be the main person. Yeah. Then the number, yeah. I mean, look, it's, it's bad prosecution. If you have a large ring like this, the top guy dies. You don't then flip the number two guy and just clean up the number three, four, five guys. I mean, we, we used to say you want to cooperate up the chain, not down. You want to get a lower level player testifying against the bigger level player. So, I really, I cannot for the life of me figure out what they're doing with Maxwell. So, Ellie, just in wrapping up here, there, as all of this is going on, there is this kind of bit of a mystery that Isakoff and I have been wondering about, which is this kind of rapid exodus out of the Justice Department over the last, you know, 10 days or so. So, you know, you had Noel Francisco, the Solicitor General, who left. Then you had Brian Benskowski, the head of the Criminal Division, and just just the other day, Jeffrey uh, Jody uh, Hunt. Uh, sorry, J- Jody yeah, Hunt. Jody head Hunt, of the civil division. Jody Hunt, the head, head of the civil division, who's gone. And it, in all of these cases, it seemed very abrupt. Uh, they, they didn't say where they were where they were going. So um, what do you think's going on here? Uh, I, I can't remember a time when that many high-level Justice Department officials left in succession like this. No, I, I, I also cannot remember it. I mean, like I said, I've been through a couple of transitions in DOJ, but I, I've not seen this. I mean, the, the normal way this works is the election happens, and then whether your party wins or loses, you know, the resignations start coming after the election. And it's also not uncommon for people to leave, even if the, even if the administration gets reelected, to leave or offer a resignation in advance of the second term. So it is unusual, and I don't know what's going on. It could be, and look, if I had to just play complete guesswork, maybe people are looking at the numbers, the way things are going, and just thinking, like, I see where this one's headed. Yeah. <laughs> Better to get out now and might as well have a couple more months out on the uh, on the private sector making money. I do want to just mention, because this is a, a, a long-running pet peeve of mine, th- there was a time, because we talked about, I talked about the utter lack of prosecutorial credentials for Jay Clayton, but the top 
four officials at the United States Department of Justice combined had ever tried and prosecuted zero cases as the line prosecutor. I mean, Bill Barr was AG in the 90s, but he never tried a case or charged a case himself on the line. You had your number two, your, number two, your deputy attorney general, Jeffrey Rosen, had no criminal experience. And it's actually funny. I looked at his, web, his bio on the official DOJ website, and there's this sort of apologetic line like, Although he's never practiced in criminal law, he has extensive experience in blah, blah, blah. The number three person is the associate attorney general, I'm blanking on the name. She has never prosecuted a case. Then you have Bedzkowski, who was in charge of the criminal division and has never prosecuted a case. And even the solicitor general, Noel Francisco, has never prosecuted a case. So that's your top five people, really, at DOJ on the criminal side with a grand total of, of zero, which, by the way, is the same number of no-hitters that I have thrown in Major League Baseball. Well, I was going to say, Elliot, after listening to that, they should bring you in to the Justice Department <laughs> and have you take over the criminal division. I'm sure this administration's eager to hire me. <laughs> right. Well, we'd be eager to have you on Skullduggery either way. Um, so... Uh, Thanks a lot for coming back, and uh, we'll be back to you as this uh, bizarre story unfolds. My pleasure. Anytime, guys. Thanks. We now have with us a uh, special guest we've been uh, wanting to get on for quite some time. Rick Wilson, co-founder of the Lincoln Project, avowed, unabashed, and never Trumper, former Republican strategist. Welcome, Rick, to Skullduggery. Thank you so much, Mike. I really appreciate you having me. Well, look, there is so much to talk about here. Uh, Trump's uh, cratering in the public opinion polls as uh, coronavirus cases soar, the Black Lives Matter protests, and uh, the Bolton book. A lot of material for you to work with as part of your effort to ensure that Donald Trump is defeated in November. It seems to me like you've got an almost embarrassment of riches there. You know, the one thing that I can rely on every day is that Donald Trump will get up in the morning and rage tweet from the toilet and <laughs> say something that will, will, will either make it into an ad or, or be an idea for an ad or some message that we're able to put out to illustrate to Americans just how unstable and unacceptable and unhinged this guy has become as president. Yeah, it is an embarrassment of riches. And a lot of it, ironically, comes down to things that Trump thought were strengths and now are not. You know, he thought the economy was always going to be there as the sort of killer app to keep him in office. Uh, he thought that he thought that from the very beginning that his base was absolutely never, ever going to crack. And it started to crack a bit. And so we see a lot of these things that are venues for us to talk about where Donald Trump is politically. And it irritates him dramatically because the reality bubble he formed relies on people believing that the economy is perfect, COVID is gone, he is the most handsome, brilliant, and uncorruptible candidate to ever hold the office of president. Since none of those are true, my days are uh, exciting. Rick, uh, <laughs> we're going to get into the issues and where he's especially vulnerable, but just staying on the numbers and the data for a little bit, you talk about his base beginning to crack. And just be specific about where you're seeing those, sure. uh, those, those cracks right now. Some of the cracks we're seeing are in seniors, uh, in polling in both Michigan, Arizona, and Florida. We've seen this, the number with seniors that supported Donald Trump in 2016 drop off between three and five points in each of those places. Sure, that's basically margin, but he can't afford a lot of slippage in that department. And seniors were a very strong part of the Trump demo in the 2016 election. More partly because they were the most likely to watch Fox, they were the most likely to be retired, they were most likely to, to lean further to the right in the ideological stack. And because of that, we are now in a position where you know, Trump is advertising in places like Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is a red, older area. He's advertising in the Florida Panhandle, again, a very red, very much older than the median area. So we know they're having to do work with those with those folks. We know in Arizona, there's been a drop off with seniors as well. We've also seen a drop off. I mean, we saw this beginning in, in 2017, 
female Republicans and educated married Republicans were slipping away beginning back in 17. We saw a big migration, especially in the ring suburbs of major metro areas like Detroit and Milwaukee and Orlando start to shift to Democratic candidates. And those things could only have come with suburban Republicans and educated Republicans moving over. Those things all add up in a lot of small numbers in small places to a clarifying moment in the campaign. Just taking this forward here, let's assume for the moment that the COVID cases continue to increase in this in these southern states. We're seeing huge increases in Florida, in Arizona, in Alabama. These are pretty hardcore red states. And as people begin to absorb the kind of shocking revelations in John Bolton's book and others potentially come forward, is there any scenario whereby... Mitch McConnell starts looking at the numbers over the next few weeks and concludes the Senate Republican majority is in serious jeopardy, cannot be sustained with Donald Trump at the head of the ticket. The Republican Party is facing a potential disaster along the lines of Barry Goldwater in 1964. And he and uh, a few others go to the White House and say, Mr. President, maybe you should step down. I think that right now, Mitch McConnell is not there, but he's knocking on the door in the outer room to that to that discussion. There are Senate races that should be easy layups for them this year that are getting sweaty. There are races where the challenger equation, you know, particularly Arizona and Colorado, it looked like those things could potentially, you know, be competitive races. And now they both look like they're solidly in the Democratic camp. You know, North Carolina is not where they want it to be. Georgia is a complete hot mess. Alabama is their one bright spot right now, which is not saying much for a Republican Party. But would McConnell have the gumption and courage and fortitude to do something like that? I don't think Mitch McConnell would. I think he is a nervous, a nervous internal player, but I think he might be forced into it if the disasters concatenate. And I think there's going to be a moment where the economic weight of this problem becomes so overwhelming as McConnell is going to be seen as the guy who blocked additional relief just as voters start to get evicted from their homes and apartments. And yeah. I think that's going to roll downhill for a lot of Republicans. And even Trump, by the way, will shank, shank Mitch McConnell in the end. He'll blame Mitch McConnell for not providing additional unemployment benefits. But, but I, look, guess the, I think I guess the it would be a historic Rick, scenario for sure. Yeah, I was going to say, I guess, Rick, the question is, what kind of leverage does Mitch McConnell have? I mean, unless the premise here is that, you know, as some people have said in the past, you know, Donald Trump never even really wanted to be president. He doesn't really want to go through another four years, even if he does win. He doesn't want to lose electorally. But, you right. know, this is a guy whose father drummed into him, you're either a killer or a loser. That is his right. whole MO in right. life. So, yeah. I mean, it's hard to imagine that Trump would step down. I think it's an, an exceedingly unlikely scenario that he would step down. I think it is a meaningfully likely scenario that Mitch McConnell will have to make a choice of stick with Trump or save the Senate majority. And I think that's already too late. I probably already too late now. I think he's already failed that test because McConnell could have made a move that put distance between himself and Trump and the members in Trump, but now they all own him. I mean, Susan Collins in Maine, her election would be a layup if she hadn't hemmed and hawed, gone back and forth and furrowed her brow and acted all sweaty and concerned, and then finally exonerated Trump regardless. It turned out the evidence didn't matter. That Her race would be easy. That's the That's the big issue right now is that she says she's independent, but she's not. And a lot of these other folks in these marginal races, Arizona with McSally, Colorado with Gardner, in these states that are that are breaking more blue, the stain of Trump is bad. It is a political weight on those folks, and, and it's not going to get any lighter. Do you see any Republican, top Republicans out there who might 
surprise us and publicly break with the president. Um, we've had uh, Lisa Murkowski say she's struggling to support him. Yeah. Mitt Romney already sort of, you know, laid down his marker during the impeachment. Do you see potential that others might come forward? Not at the moment, but I think that, that there will be a bait cutting time probably closer into August, between late August and mid-September, there will be a moment where their pollsters come back and say, okay, you know, the unemployment rate is sky high. People are blaming Trump and the economy, Trump on the collapsed economy. They're blaming him on the continued death toll of COVID. And it's time for you to put some daylight there. The Trump base will still be with you because you're a Republican. You believe in all these Republican things, but you've got to save yourself with independence. And, uh, you know, a lot of them will resist because they are they're afraid of Donald Trump. They're not afraid of him because he's some, you know, intellectual giant. They're afraid of his mob. They're afraid of getting Twitter slammed by his mob and getting on the wrong side of Fox News and getting on the wrong side of all the Trump media outlets out there. But those folks, you know, I've been through enough campaigns to tell you that survival is a strong incentive, that the idea that you're going to lose or change Change will come when you feel like you're going to lose. Now, sometimes well, the, the that, real that question is, is the timing. That yeah, was the premise timing. of my question that, you know, that nobody wants to lose and that that would be, you know, the reason that uh, some people might come forward. And, you know, maybe it's a dream scenario or the idea that, that there'll be a sort of, you know, moment when, as Barry Goldwater did with Nixon in 72, where they go to the White House and say, you got to leave. Yeah, it's over. I want to ask you about how you, in this polarized environment, can persuade anybody at this point. It seems to me that that Trump base is so impervious to arguments, to new facts that, uh, you know, that, that, and people are so dug in on both sides that I just wonder, you, you're running some really tough ads ridiculing Trump. You were right off the, the Bolton book with the stuff about China. But does it convince anybody? Who is your target audience in these ads? This is a game of very small numbers, first off. The game of small numbers, you know, Trump won the whole election by 77,000 votes in three states, won Florida by less than 150,000 votes. So those small numbers that we have to move are targetable in this race. We will be able to find and, and find and address the people we need to find and address come the election window. But we're litigating this campaign with a lot of folks who have believed things about Donald Trump that have collided now with reality so severely that you can't spin them. You can't pretend that they, you know, we, obviously we've talked for the last four years ad infinitum about Russia. There was a public space where that story could be confused and conflated and, and obscured and spun. Well, you can't spend 200,000 deaths. You can't spend... 40 million unemployed Americans. So we think our ads are very effective in terms of moving moving the discussion, moving the numbers. And some of our ads, as we've openly said, are designed purely to get in Donald Trump's head and to mess with Donald Trump. Because every day Donald Trump is yelling about us or attacking the Lincoln Project is a day he's not up attacking Joe Biden, is a day he's not up you know, spending resources. We, there's a story last week that the Trump campaign is spending – $400,000 a month now in Washington, D.C. to run ads because Trump was so angry he was seeing our ads on television but not the campaign ads. As we all know, there's no scenario where Donald Trump wins Washington, D.C. under any circumstances. But playing the role that we're playing as, as his primary antagonists and as, as folks who are, who, are, who are in this fight giving moderate Republicans and suburban Republicans some reasons to say, I can't support this guy a second time. That's a mission set we think we're very effective in. So, Rick, I'm curious what you attribute this kind of cratering in Trump's standing to uh, primarily. How much is it just over the last three and a half years, the, to use your word, unhinged con uh, conduct, the scandals, the crazy mm -hmm. tweeting? And how much of it is these exogenous factors like coronavirus, the economy, now maybe even the protests and the sort of sense that the country is out of control? And I know it may be all of these things, but was there a kind of a 
breaking point that had to do with these outside factors? Those factors absolutely have had a role to play in where the debate and dialogue have shifted. But it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have had the same impact if Donald Trump had been a relatively normal president, if he had been a relatively stable president, if he had occasionally disciplined himself to say the right things that presidents are expected to say in moments of crisis or trauma or leadership. Um, he instead had to play the role of Donald Trump to the hilt all the time. And because of that, when these factors finally hit him, the ability to bullshit his way out of the box ran into, as I said, the, the unspinnable. And you know, 200,000 people dead, which is what we're headed for, is unspinnable. Yeah, an economic collapse of Great Depression standards, unspinnable. So all, in all those cases, there's a sense that Trump could have had a different glide slope here, but he didn't. What about the, um, the protests, the Black Lives Matters movement? Uh, I mean, he obviously tried to take a page out of the uh, Nixon playbook. We've talked mm -hmm. a lot about 1968 on this, on this podcast. We know it's not in any sense a perfect analogy since Nixon was not the incumbent and, and Trump is. But um, would a more deft Republican conservative politician been able to have taken advantage of that situation with a kind of a law and order message? Or is it just that you kind of got to get with the times and things are changing? Yeah, the, this is a very different world than 1968. And although, as I, as I talked and wrote about in the beginning of this, you know, the, the, the Roger Ailes DNA that informs the Trump campaign, both in 16 and today, is very strong that Roger Ailes' approach to the racially divisive politics that Nixon exploited, because look, the silent majority meant the white majority. The silent majority meant that he was going to protect suburban and exurban whites from those people in this, in the, that were burning the cities down. And in that narrower media climate of the time, it may have seemed like a much more compelling message than it does today, because we didn't see the, the provocations in those cases as clearly as we do today. There wasn't a scene of consistently of George Floyd on TV. You know, there were bigger cataclysmic moments, the death of MLK, uh, you know, Bobby Kennedy, all these things, but they weren't as the media landscape was a different place. I think that there's a inclination on the side of the Trump folks to very much play to the cop cult and to very much play to the back the blue folks who he sees as the core of his base, not inappropriately, by the way, they are the core of his base. And I think it also reflects sort of the belief of Trump himself that, you know, Fred's kid here is not a guy who has notoriously been a civil rights leader in this country. And, <laughs> and because of the way I think that Trump himself views race, you know, based on Central Park Five, the birther stuff, the casino stuff, all these matters, I think, very much reflect his approach of saying, be tough, knock him down, you know, don't treat him too nice, all that sort of um, – it's not quite Bull Connor, let the dogs work, but it's, in, in the, it's, it's knocking on the door of, of that kind of attitude. I got to just say uh, that uh, as we've been recording this podcast, Trump tweeted – maybe he was listening because he just <laughs> tweeted about uh, Mitch McConnell – at Team Mitch <laughs> – always delivers for the people yes. of Kentucky who will hopefully reelect their powerful Senate majority leader. Mitch has helped us make America great again and, oh, has, my, and has my complete and total endorsement. He must be worried about the scenario that Nesikov laid out. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll, uh, we will see on that. But does, it does make me wonder whether they were listening. Yeah, yeah. Rick, who did you support for president in 2016? I supported Marco Rubio. And uh, after Rubio dropped out? I went from Rubio. Uh, I, I mean, I went like everybody else. I went through the, the stations of the cross. You know, yeah. as, as, we, as we went down the chain, I, you know, it, it ended with Kasich, I guess. But I had worked for a pro-Marco super PAC briefly that was coming together with a bunch of California folks who were investing in a super PAC out there that fell apart because Trump started to eat Marco's lunch and eat Jeb's lunch. And, you know, you could almost see in real time the alteration of the DNA of the Republican Party. What do you, can I, can I ask, what do you make of Rubio now? I was really struck the other day when the Bolton book came out 
And um, Rubio was asked about that appalling scene in the Bolton book where the president seems to be encouraging President Xi to uh, continue with the herding of Uyghurs, a million Uyghurs, into concentration camps. Now, that's been an issue for Rubio. He has spoken out about Chinese human rights abuses, in particular what's being done to the Uyghurs. And when he was asked about what was in Bolton's book, Rubio, who now, by the way, is acting chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, says, well, I don't have any way of knowing whether that happened. I wasn't there. Who knows whether it happened or not? Now, it would seem to me that the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee's job is to find out information when you weren't there in the room. That's what intelligence is all about. I assure you, they got to read back to the intelligence community of those meetings. All right. So what do you make of the way Rubio responds these days and continues to have good kid gloves about the president of the United States? Look, I I, I like Marco, but, you know, there are a lot of people in the Senate now who are what I call profiles in chicken shit. They are so afraid of Donald Trump that they will do anything to prevent him from turning his eye onto them. They'll do anything to keep him from attacking them or tweeting about them or saying something nasty or giving them a new nickname. He broke them. Rick, you just said, you told us a little while ago that the president's numbers are so shaky that he's running ads in the panhandle, the Florida panhandle, the most ruby red part of Florida. If he's worried about the Florida panhandle, why is Rubio so chicken shit of Donald Trump right now? Because if he goes after if he goes after Donald Trump, he will not get invitations to appear on Fox News. If he goes after Donald Trump, the president's Twitter feed will will attack him and he will be turned into a political pariah. And I will tell you the other reason. And you you and I, we all know this. Almost every one of these members of the Senate who is younger and more ambitious, they want to run for president in 2024. And they have in their heads a very simple calculus. That calculus is this. They believe that they can create a post-Trump nationalist populist party. They can sand off the rough edges of Donald Trump, and they can become the avatar for for nationalism and post-conservatism and get the Trump base to stick with them in the 2024 national election, that they can build this new coalition of nationalist economic populism that is – Still fairly white, but also, you know, make big inroads in working class vote. To get that, they all think to themselves they have to keep Fox and they have to keep the Trump base. And they're going to do everything they can to not have on their permanent record an attack on Donald Trump and a conflict with Donald Trump. They really want to avoid that at all costs. Well, that's certainly been the case until now. I do wonder, as the uh, poll numbers continue to slip for Trump, uh, you know, Biden is now up by, what, 12 points in the in the Fox News poll, uh, double digits. That must have been yeah. a ugly night in the Murdoch household. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> All right, sure Rick, uh, last question from me. This is, you know, I guess kind of amazingly that this would ever happen in, in our lifetimes, but there is some serious discussion among uh, relatively serious people that uh, if Donald Trump loses the election, which he is now on a, seems to be on a glide path toward doing, that he may not willingly uh, give up his office. You know, there's a possibility, at least, that with all these mail-in votes, that we won't know Mm -hmm. the results immediately, that he will use that to wreak havoc, that he will, you know, try to undermine the legitimacy. Uh, is that something that you think people legitimately ought to be concerned about? Or is that a little paranoid at this point? As I told a Democratic group the other day that I spoke to, they're like, how do we prevent this? I said, well, you win the election by such a giant margin that it doesn't matter if he cheats. You absolutely just have to destroy him electorally. You have to beat him not by you know 273 electoral college votes. You got to beat him by 350. And that, that idea that Trump will try to stay I think is legitimate for one reason. What do we know about Donald Trump? We know Donald Trump is kind of a gambler. He's kind of a day trader. He will always try to pull off some kind of BS because he thinks he can get away with it. And he's often right. He's often correct. 
that he'll tweet something or name somebody something, and it will often stick. He's got a sort of very cunning way of getting that that sort of populism to work for him. Now, does that mean he's going to be able to stay in the White House if he's beaten and and the Electoral College certifies the vote? No. It will it will it it may take time. He may be stubborn, but don't be surprised if it's a closer election that he declares voter fraud, that he tries to litigate it, that he that he gets on on Fox News immediately and every day after that to say the election was stolen, the country's at risk. I need 90 more days. I need 120 more days. This is a scam. This is a rigged election. I need you to my people to stand up and fight for me. Don't be surprised if you see that, because. Wow. He's again. He's a gambler. Well, on that apocalyptic note, <laughs> yay! <laughs> well, anyway, Rick. Uh, uh, yes, we will be back to you to see whether your forecast of uh, apocalypse happens in reality. I'd, I'd uh, like to hope I'm wrong. Okay. Well, we'd like either way. We'd like to have you back, and thanks for joining us on Skull. Well, I'd be delighted, guys. Thank you so much. Thanks to former Assistant U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, Ellie Honig, and co-founder of the Lincoln Project and former Republican strategist Rick Wilson for joining us on Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.